you find Isaiah. And uh, I've I decided to um, largely for the sake of public relations to skip the jokes about how he got his name. Didn't really see any profit in doing that. Right, Isaiah, the, the first of the like the written prophets. One of the major prophets as well. You get major prophets, you get minor prophets. Uh, nothing to do with importance or lack of importance, but the major prophets like Isaiah wrote very, very long books, you know, 60 plus chapters. The minor prophets wrote 12, 14 and under, some of them one, which is my kind of book, you know. Uh, so the, the, the first of the major prophets here and um, get the old historical background. <clears throat> um, he was from Judah, so he was a prophet of the southern kingdom. And, um, and basically, he, he, he was active for a long time. He had a 50-odd year ministry. So his book spans 50 years, and as you'll find out, not necessarily in chronological order as well. It's very bitty, but I you know, guess that's, that's just the nature of the major prophets, you know, because they span such a long time. But he had a 50-year ministry, and basically he was down in the south in Judah, and um, he, he was in the years leading up to and including the captivity of the northern kingdom. So you've got the southern kingdom, Judah, all right, and that's where Isaiah was. Up in the north, you've got Israel, the northern kingdom, and you remember that they ended up being taken off into Assyrian captivity. Hundred years later, Judah was taken off into the Babylonian captivity. But Isaiah, he's in the south, that was where he was based, and he was there in the years leading up to and including the time when Assyria took Israel, the northern kingdom, captive. And, um, and indeed, as we're going to see, it was really, God used him in sort of like Judah escaping a similar fate. Because you'll remember, and we saw this when we did all the history, didn't we, that Assyria led the north off in captivity, but also they had a crack at Jerusalem as well, and there was the siege during the reign of Hezekiah, and, and, and the Lord used Isaiah very much um, in the deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrian army. So we can, we can date him, uh, for those of you who like dates, from around 745 to 695 BC, a kind of a 50-year period. Um, he, he lived through, through quite a few kings as well. Um, Isaiah, uh, you remember Isaiah was also called Azariah, isn't it complicated? Uh, so Azariah, he was a good king. Uh, Jotam was a good king. Uh, next you had Ahaz, who was wicked. Then Hezekiah, he was the good king and the one who was there when Assyria tried to um, attack Jerusalem. And then Manasseh, who was a wicked king. And Isaiah lived through all those reigning kings down in Judah. So you can see that he was around for a long time. This was uh, a long <coughs> ministry. Um, he's, he's just about the, the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. Um, he gets quoted an awful lot. 
And, uh, and theologians and Bible scholars refer to him with very good reason as the messianic prophet because basically there is so much in his book that is prophecies about the coming Messiah. There's so much about Jesus in the prophecies. And all we can do obviously is have a little dippy dippy, uh, but, 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 but let's do that. So, so just dippy into, uh, just find chapter 7. I'm just going to give you just a handful of these messianic prophecies. We'll hit them again as we go through it chapter by chapter. But, uh, you know, just, just to kind of give you an idea, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel. Now, that undoubtedly referred to one thing at that time, but remember the New Testament lays claim to this as, as, as being a, a prophecy, um, you know, and the, you know, the fact of the virgin birth. And whereas in the Hebrew, the word here, virgin, can simply mean a young woman uh, in the New Testament in the Greek when this is quoted the word virgin in the Greek is only um, virgin parthenogenesis um, and uh, a virgin birth and uh, so there we have a prophecy of that just flick over into chapter 9 um, for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it, blah, 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 blah. So there's another one, a bit, bit Christmassy tonight so far, isn't it? But another one there. Um, incidentally, this thing about, you might have often wondered, why is that a prophecy of Jesus, that he's called Wonderful Counselor, no problem with that, Mighty God, no problem with that. Prince of Peace, no problem with that. But how can he be the Father, the Everlasting Father? Have you ever thought about that? Because Jesus is the Son, not the Father. And the reason is this phrase in the Hebrew could also be translated Father of the Eternal or the Originator of the Eternal. Um, in Hebrews you get the phrase of Jesus being the author of, and finisher of our faith. And also, um, in the Acts of the Apostles, it refers to him as the author of life. And that's kind of what this is. It's kind of the idea of the originator um, of eternal life, because, of course, everything was created through Jesus. So a bit of a wrong translation there. So rather than everlasting father, you've got more the idea of the father of the everlasting in the sense that Jesus originated everlasting life, etc., etc. So chuck that in for nothing. Uh, chapter 11. Um, Verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power. And if you go through the, the rest of that chapter again, you'll, you'll find, you know, sort of prophecy very much about the ministry of of Jesus, you know, it talks about, you know, that, that, that he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes and stuff like that. Um, go, go to chapter 35. Fret not, we're going to go through this chapter by chapter, but I'm, I'm just chucking this out as a... This is your hors d'oeuvre tonight, this is. Uh, ch chapter 35, and uh, find verse... And... Um, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with a vengeance. Go down to verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
and you'll remember that Jesus, when the, um, when, um, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and they said, look, John wants to know whether you're the one who's to come or not, Jesus, he said, tell him that the blind can see and, you know, lay claim to these, these verses. Uh, go, go to chapter 42. And... Um, And here my servant, uh, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. It's very much the, you know, the kind of like the character of Jesus, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of that he, you know, he wasn't going to, stand there yelling, you know, arguing with people, you know, very gentle, that, that was the kind of the approach that he took. And then of course in chapters 52 and through to 53 there's the, the one you all know about, you know, the suffering servant and, you know, the description of Jesus, you know, sort of like on the cross and, you know, he was bruised for our iniquities and, you know, obviously you're aware of that one. But we'll, we'll get to that in time. But um, we're going to go through it like chapter by chapter, so this is going to be a real whoosh. I mean, I can't by any means do it justice in one talk, but I decided that I wouldn't do it in two talks, because we've got to draw the line somewhere. I mean, you could do a talk on every chapter, but then Isaiah alone would take 66 weeks. So, obviously, we've got to draw a line somewhere, so we're going to express train our way through this. Um, the book breaks down into three sections. Uh, don't expect chronology. Um, you know, it's, it's all over the place. All right, um, but uh, the first section uh, in chapters 1 to 35 are prophecies that relate largely to Isaiah's own time, you know, immediate prophecies at the time he was living, although we're going to see that mixed in with there are lots of prophecies about, you know, like the end times as well. Um, then from chapter 36 to 39, just get a small clump of chapters there, which is very much a, an, an historical interlude. And uh, it's telling the story of when Assyria, you know, having beaten up the northern kingdom, when the Assyrians tried to uh, take the southern kingdom into captivity as well. So we'll, um, you know, have a look at them. And uh, also they kind of uh, include the beginnings of <coughs> Isaiah warning that, um, you know, that even though Assyria had gone into captivity, sorry, even though the north had gone into Assyrian captivity, that uh, later on the south, Judah, would end up going into Babylonian um, captivity. And of course, that was remarkable because Isaiah was prophesying all that before Babylon was even a world power. You know, so I mean, it's quite, quite striking. And then from chapters 40 to 66, uh, you get all the prophecies that relate to that captivity, detailed prophecies about the Babylonians carting Judah off. And of course, it wasn't to happen for another hundred years. And, um, and then also Judah's uh, future from that point. So Isaiah, he doesn't just prophesy about the captivity, but as we're going to see, he prophesies about how the Persian Empire defeated that empire, and then Israel was sent back into the land under Cyrus. You know, and I mean, all this 100, 150, 160 years before it happened. So, uh, you know, that's, that's why Isaiah is, uh, you know, sort of like quite a striking, striking prophet. 
And uh, obviously we're going to see as well that it contains an awful lot about the millennium, the eternal state, and, you know, way out, you know, the end times and the other end of history completely. So that's the kind of like the three sections. And um, so, so section one first, and this is largely prophecies relating to Isaiah's own time. The, the, the scene in which he lived. <clears throat> and uh, so, so chapter one, and um, in chapter one through Isaiah, God makes a case against the wickedness of Judah. So through Isaiah, God is speaking to Judah, the southern kingdom, and, uh, you know, sort of telling them that you're out of fellowship, there's undealt with sin, come back to me, repent. And, uh, and he compares Judah to Sodom and Gomorrah, and call, calls it a harlot, you know, a harlot, and the idea of spiritual adultery there, that rather than being faithful to one god or husband, that, you know, Judah was a whoring after other gods and, you know, worshipping idols and stuff like that. So a real warning there um, to Judah. But a promise that one day, regardless of what they were then, very unfaithful, but uh, a prophecy that one day they would become a thoroughly purified nation and would one day be made completely faithful. Um, that hasn't happened yet, and of course that's referring to um, the end times, when of course Israel will be faithful to the Lord. Um, in chapter 2, very much following on from this uh, theme, you get a, a prophecy um, talking about the centrality of Jerusalem in the age of the kingdom. So here it, it, it shoots forward uh, to the thousand year reign of Christ and it talks about that all nations will go there and that the Lord himself will, will dwell there. And there's a prophecy as well about a coming day when um, mankind in totality will be judged. And you know so there we have a kind of a look forward to you know to the time the, you know, sort of like all the nations of the world will be judged. That's the end of the Great Tribulation, then the thousand-year reign of Christ, when Jerusalem is the centre of the earth and all nations will, will come in and worship. And, you know, you've got that there in a prophecy in chapter 2. In chapter 3, uh, a prophecy that Judah and Jerusalem, you know, Jerusalem, you know, sort of being the capital, were going to be judged by God for their sin and eventually Judah would end up going into captivity. So the first hint there that uh, although things were by then looking quite bad for the northern kingdom, a hint there that uh, things weren't going to work out too well for the southern kingdom either. And uh, in, in chapter 4, and the, the nation is, is referred to as being the Lord's branch. Now later on, the Messiah is called that, but here, the nation is called the Lord's branch. And, um, and you get a prophecy that a, a remnant, because at that time the nation as a whole was completely unfaithful, but that a day will come when a remnant will live again under the Shekinah glory. You know, and of course by now, you know, the Shekinah glory, the, the fire by, you know, sort of by night and the you know, sort of like the cloud by day is long since gone. You know, I mean, a dim, dim, distant history for Israel, you know, and Judah at that point. But, you know, saying that one day that Shekinah glory would be back 
and, uh, and that a remnant would live in the land under the Shekinah glory. And so once more, obviously, we, we know that that's looking ahead to the thousand-year reign of Jesus. So a lot on the millennium. And obviously, with all of these, you've got to read through them to pick the details up. But the point is that with me telling you basically what each chapter is about, at least some of it is going to make a bit more sense to you. So I know that Isaiah is not an easy read, uh, you know, sort of at all. Right, chapter 5, um, Judah and Jerusalem are likened to um, a vineyard that is uh, due to be trampled down because it yielded only bad fruit. And, um, and of course that was a picture that Jesus used, you know, sort of like of the people at his day, you know, that the vineyard and, you know, the owner came to get his grapes and he sent his servants and they were beaten and the tenants threw them out and eventually he sent his own son. And, uh, you know, the tenants of the vineyard beat him. And, um, you know, so Jesus said, so what's going to happen is that the vineyard is going to be taken from the tenants there and given to someone else. And, of course, that was Jesus said, because the vineyard was a picture of Israel, the Jews. And, of course, that was, you know, there. Him saying about, you know, well, okay, look, you've blown it and the church is going to, you know, at least for a time, take over from you. And, uh, and then after that, you get a list of various sins that the Lord was angry with them for and, uh, you know, various judgments that uh, he was going to send on them. In chapter 6, uh, we, we get to the, the year that King Isaiah died. And uh, you get the actual um, account of, of Isaiah being called and when he was actually taken up into heaven. And, uh, you know, the thing, you know, sort of like he was high, you know, he saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And, um, and you had the, um, you know, the angel took the burning coal and touched his lips. And you remember that Isaiah, you know, sort of said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And, um, and what you've got there Thus far, if you just were to read chapters 1 to 5, you very much get the impression of it's the ministry of Isaiah, basically, <coughs> woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. I mean, he, he was convicting everyone of sin. That's fine, that, that was all, all spirit-led stuff. It was right. But what's interesting now is that when he has this vision of the Lord in all his glory, now Isaiah is arrested with a woe is me. He said, rather than, you know, sort of like everyone else's sins, he realises his own. And the point about him saying that I'm a man of unclean lips, that was his calling. He was one who spoke God's word, a prophet. And, you know, sort of like, you know, when he says, woe is me, I am undone. And of course, it's true to say that we all need to be undone. We all need to be undone. And Isaiah, as he describes this vision he had and taken up into heaven, and, you know, at the end of the day, the only, you know, we should only seek to bring others to turn from their sins when we really know what it is to be broken for our own. And then what's so interesting is that after that, in chapter 7, we saw it, but you get the, you know, the sign of the child, Emmanuel. The first... Uh, thing that he writes about Jesus. So chapters 1 to 5 is all repentance and condemnation. Well, that's fine. That, that was great. 
Chapter 6, he gets broken, but then in chapter 7, now Jesus comes through. Grace. Can you see that? And of course, you know, sort of like, you know, anyone can, oh, you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong. Yeah, of course, we are. We're all wrong. We need telling. Other people need telling. But when we're broken, then Jesus comes through. That's a lovely picture. Chapters 1 to 5, woe is everyone else. In chapter 6, Isaiah is broken. He says, woe is me. And then in chapter 7, Jesus comes through him for the first time. And uh, it's a lovely picture, you know, needing to be broken so that Jesus can come through us. So uh, in chapter 7, you get the prophecy about this child. Um, then we get a bit of history in this chapter 7. This is quite important. Because... Um, what happens now is that um, Israel, the north, attacks Judah, the south. We saw this in the history of the two kingdoms. There were times when they attacked each other. And this particular juncture, the north attacks the south. And uh, Israel, the north, is in a treaty with Syria. All right? And so Israel, in conjunction with Syria, attacks um, the south. And this is when Ahaz was king. Ahaz was not a good king, incidentally. Now, Isaiah is sent to Ahaz and assures him that this attack is not going to work, that God is going to defend Judah against Israel and Syria. But Ahaz doesn't believe Isaiah, all right? And rather than trust the Lord, he calls on the Assyrians and he makes a treaty with the Assyrians. So he goes to the, As the Assyrians and he says, look, Israel and Syria are attacking me. I want a treaty with you, so you come into partnership with me to defend me. So that's what happened. Now, the point was, it was as a result of this treaty that King Ahaz in Judah made with the Assyrians that led the Assyrians to then go on and to take the north into captivity. So, as a result, the Assyrians, rising as the world power at that time, they come into a treaty with Judah in the south against Israel in the north. And they don't stop at defending the south. The Assyrians then go on and cart Israel off into captivity. But then, having done that, this completely backfires on Israel because then later on, the sorry, on Judah, because later on the Assyrians then come back and try and take Judah into captivity as well. So the point is that Judah, King Ahaz, the south, turns to Assyria for help against Israel, the north. Assyria helps Judah, yes, but then goes on to cart the north off and destroy it completely and then tries to do the same to the south. So the point is that the Assyrians completely betrayed Judah but it was completely wrong that Judah went into this treaty with them because Isaiah was there saying, no, don't go to the Assyrians, God is going to defend us himself. And so it's a picture, if you trust in man rather than God, there are always complications at a later date. And, um, you know, and so what happens here is that uh, you know God says to them, right, okay, as a judgment for not trusting me, you turned to Assyria. The judgment is that Assyria is going to devastate you as well. You won't be taken into captivity. So we see that comes later, 100 years later, but the judgment was that Assyria would devastate you 
because you trusted in them rather than in God. And, and of course that happened in the reign of Hezekiah, which we'll get to later on. Right, chapter 8. Now, uh, you often get, you know, you know, sort of like, you know, these guys a prophet, their whole lives are tied up with it. And uh, yeah, we're going to see later on that Hosea, he married a harlot, <laughs> you know, sort of like to be a prophetic. So even his family life was part of the message that, um, you know, that he had. And, and, and here, Isaiah, um, you know, he had a wife. And um, he has a child here. His wife, um, you know, sort of like gives birth, you know, to a son. And Isaiah calls him, now wait for this, Mahashal Hashbaz. I'll say that again. Mahashal Hashbaz. Can you imagine your dad doing that to you? But his son was called Mahashal Shazbaz. Now, he was called that because it means something. And what it means is, it means quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. And it was a kind of a statement, all right, um, to Syria and Israel that, that, that the fact that Israel had ganged up with Syria against Judah, all right, that God was going to judge them. And so Israel, sorry, you know, he has a son here and calls him this as a prophetic statement against the north that God was going to judge them. And of course the judgment came in the form that the Assyrians carted them off and destroyed them completely. Um, and it's also in this chapter that Isaiah is told to write all this down. So all the prophecies that he gets, he's now told to write down. So this is the point which he starts to write it all. And then at the end of chapter 8, you get a warning against spiritism, you know, spirit and occultism and stuff like that. <coughs> uh, chapter 9, uh, you get the prophecy of the Messiah, uh, which, which we saw earlier. So I'll lead you to, uh, to read that again. And, um, and then a, a bit about the Lord's anger against Israel up in the north, you know, how, how angry God was with them. Um, chapter 10... Now, this chapter was written after Assyria took the north into captivity. So don't expect chronological order, because you don't get it, only very roughly. But uh, chapter 10, this one, was written after um, Israel, the north, had been carted off by the Assyrians. And, uh, and it's a prophecy of God's anger against the Assyrians for carting Israel off into captivity, you see. And of course, the Assyrians were eventually, you know, destroyed themselves. Now, then, um, in chapter eleven and uh, and chapter twelve, um, you get a bit more about the millennium. And that I'll just give you, if, if if you just go to chapter eleven, we saw a bit from chapter eleven earlier, the thing about the branch from Jesse, you know, being messianic, but um, but mixed in with the messianic prophecies, because of course. When you get the prophecies about Messiah, it, it always refers to the two comings. The first coming, all right, when Jesus came <laughs> as a man, you know, to die on the cross. But then the second coming, when he comes as the glorified king, you see. And there you get, um, you know, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And it's, you know, it's like, for instance, um, let's see, in, in, in verse 6, you get the famous, uh, you know, sort of thing about the wolf will live with the lamb. Um, a, the leopard will lie down with the goat, um, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, a little child will lead them, the cow will feed with the bear, 
their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. And it's a description of the thousand year reign of Jesus, when the earth is restored to how it was before um, you know, the flood and uh, you know before you know lions became carnivorous and stuff like that and uh, you know so you get the prophecies there and of course you can read through them and sort of learn quite a bit about you know what the thousand year reign of Christ is going to be like uh, so that's chapters 11 and 12 um, chapter 13 and 14 um, I mean you know you can see he's all over the place. A lot of this relates mainly to his own time, but a lot of it is really future. And uh, in chapters 13 and 14, what you do now is you get a prophecy about the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Um, now, what is so striking about this is that the prophecy about the fall of that empire is here given a hundred years before there was a Babylonian Empire. And here is a prophecy about its fall. Now you see how striking that is. He's here talking about the Babylonian Empire will fall. But this is a hundred years before it rose, you see. But that's what prophets do, isn't it? Um, and uh, in, in, if, if you, uh, in, in chapter 14, if you find verse 12, and um, just a quickie here, just because it's uh, quite important, um, and you get this, this verse, how, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. Uh, you've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid the nations. And you've got um, a few verses there, and that's about the fall of Satan. All right. And of course, what's happening is that it's talking about, you know, sort of like the Babylonian kingdom and stuff like that. And then suddenly it addresses the power behind that kingdom which was, of course, Satan himself. And so there you get those verses which are you know, all about the fall of, of, of Satan, who was the power behind the Babylonian Empire. So I just chuck that in. And then you get um, a prophecy against the Assyrians. You know, again, God's saying, I'm going to destroy you because of what you've done to, uh, you know, to Israel, the northern kingdom. And uh, then you get a prophecy against the Philistines, just because God didn't like the Philistines very much. Um, in chapters 15 and 16, uh, you get a prophecy against the Moabites. So there you get two chapters, and that's a prophecy of God saying, I'm going to judge Moab. Um, chapter 17, uh, you get a prophecy against Damascus. Now, Damascus was the capital of Syria, all right? And uh, you'll remember that, that Israel, the northern kingdom, got into alliance with Syria, all right? So what you've got here is the Lord saying, right, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, ganged up with Syria against Judah. Because of that, I'm going to judge Israel, all right? And here he's saying, but Syria, don't you think you're not going to get judged because you're going to get judged as well? And then, of course, you remember what happened that the south, rather than trusting the Lord, got an alliance with Assyria. So then God judged them as well. See? I mean, you know, it's very comprehensive. Um, so in chapter 17, you, you get that. So, you know, Lord mopping up the loose ends there. So Syria comes in for it there. Um, chapter 18. Everything you ever needed to know about Isaiah. Except how he got his name, of course. So I'm not going to tell you. Uh, so chapter 18. 
and uh, you get um, a prophecy of judgment against Cush, which which was the then name for Ethiopia. So prophecy against Ethiopia. I'm not going to go into details. Uh, chapters 19 and chapters 20 um, are partly a continuation of the prophecy against Cush or Ethiopia, as it later became known, but are also now includes a prophecy against Egypt. So, what God was saying to Egypt. Chapter 21, um, you get a judgment on Babylon, so prophecy against Babylon, which of course, remember, was going to become 100 years later world power and what Assyria had done to the north, Babylon did to the south. So uh, you get a prophecy against the Babylonians there. Um, then you get one against Edom. Now in chapter 21, that comes in the form of uh, prophecies against Juma and Seir, but they were towns of um, Edom. And also there's a prophecy against Arabia. Then in chapter 22, you get a, a prophecy of a judgment on Jerusalem. And um, it's, it, it, it's called here the Valley of Vision. So Jerusalem is, you know, sort of like gets a nickname here from God called the Valley of Vision. And um, gets called other things as well. I mean, it's, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, when we come on to do Joel, you get the Valley of Jehoshaphat and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, here under the pseudonym of the Valley of Vision, you get um, a, a, a prophecy of judgment against Jerusalem. And... Um, and there's a high-ranking official in Jerusalem who's called Shebna, and uh, he was a bit of a bad egg, and uh, so he is prophesied against by Isaiah, and is then duly replaced by another high-ranking official called Eliakim, who was uh, faithful to the Lord. Uh, chapter 23. So you can see what I mean, that these are all over the place, you know, I mean, because they, you know, it's not... Don't think of it as one, but he wrote, sat down one day and wrote a book. It's a compilation of prophecies brought together over 50 years, obviously. So that's, that's why it's all over the place. Uh, chapter 23 is um, a prophecy against Tyre, judgment from God that was going to come on Tyre. And uh, then in chapters 24 to 27, you get a bit of a, bit of a clump there. And uh, you get a fairly large section which are prophecies about how in the last days God will shake the earth and I mean we know from the New Testament that in fact this is talking about the great tribulation and you get prophecies about you know God shaking the earth in the last days and um, and that Israel God's people because remember that Israel in the north, they got carted off and destroyed. Once it was only Judah left, all right, once Judah went off into captivity, after that point, although there was only Judah, it reverted to being called Israel, all right. So Israel was the northern kingdom as long as it lasted, but then the name reverted back to the southern kingdom, which became the only Jewish kingdom there was. And, uh, you know, so you've got the prophecies, the last days, God shaking the earth, judging the nations, and, uh, but Israel is going to be set free and delivered in the midst of it. And uh, key, key verse in that section, go to um, chapter 26, this will just give you an idea, verse 19. 
and uh, you know just give you an idea of it but your dead will live their bodies will rise so this is the resurrection of the second coming you who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy your dew is like the dew of the morning the earth will give birth to her dead go my people enter your rooms shut the doors behind you hide yourselves for a little until the wrath has passed by see the lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins the earth will disclose the blood shed upon her she will conceal her slain no longer and you know there's a bit and that, that's the sort of like when the old testament saints and the tribulation saints are being raised from the dead you know they get you know sort of like you know glorified uh, at the time of you know when Jesus comes again to judge the earth and to establish his kingdom so again read through those chapters and you'll learn you know a bit about the end times and that right now chapter 28 um, is a prophecy against the northern kingdom um, here called Ephraim um, which of course was one of Joseph's sons um, so there you have God speak of the judgment that is going to come upon them, which of course was the Assyrians eventually casting them off. Uh, and, uh, but also there's um, a warning to the south as well, so Judah gets warned. Because obviously what was going to happen to the north under the Assyrians was to eventually happen to the south uh, at the hands of the Babylonians. And then you get this... Um, this kind of fascinating bit all about being handed over to a people of um, foreign lips and um, it's quite interesting because this was was always a sign of judgment for Israel because the ultimate sanction of course was to be carted off by a nation of foreigners and of course they you know they didn't speak Hebrew did they so foreign lips and what's um, interesting is that uh, in, 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 in verse 13 you get this, so the word of the Lord will become do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there, so that they will go and fall backwards, be injured and snared and snared and captured. Now the point is, that if you, in the Hebrew, and indeed in the English, if you keep saying that, it sounds like tongues. And the point was, that is why, on the day of Pentecost, speaking in tongues was the sign to Israel that they had been, that God had turned his back on them and the church was coming into being. Because tongues was a sign to Israel of the judgment of God because it represented being carted off by a nation whose language you didn't understand. And that is why tongues was a sign to the Jews that uh, Israel was uh, out of fellowship with God you know, a foreign tongue, foreign languages. So, uh, you know, you've got that bit there. And then also in, um, in this chapter, you've got, um, you know, sort of like the prophecies about God was, was, was laying a cornerstone in Zion, um, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And of course, all that is quoted in the New Testament as uh, referring to Jesus um, himself. Uh, in, in chapters 29 to 31, um, you, you get um, a, a prophecy of the imminent besieging of Jerusalem by the Assyrian army. So, uh, you know, you've got, you know, the Assyrians have done away with the north and now Isaiah is saying the Assyrian army is now going to come down south and they're going to have a go at us and they're going to besiege Jerusalem. And he, you know, sort of tells them that, that this is partly a judgment um, 
on a wrong alliance with Egypt that they had going at the time. So at the time when Isaiah was speaking this out, Israel, uh, sorry, the South, Judah, had a treaty going with, with Egypt that the Lord had said no to, but they did it anyway. And this Assyria coming and besieging Jerusalem was as much as, uh, you know, was kind of a judgment on that. But also the promise came through Isaiah that although the Assyrians were going to besiege the city and although it had looked really bad that God would set them free, that they would be safe and that God would deliver them from the, um, the siege that was going on amongst them. Uh, then you get uh, in, in chapter 32, uh, you get a, a, a prophecy of the coming messianic reign. Uh, like verse 1, see a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. And if you read through it, you've got there a prophecy of uh, you know, the coming messianic reign that the king would come, Messiah would eventually appear. And uh, in chapter 33, uh, you get a prophecy of the destruction that was to eventually come upon um, Assyria and uh, how the Lord would protect Jerusalem, even though Assyria was going to try and destroy it. Um, then in chapter 34, uh, you, you have a prophecy of a day that was going to come when the Lord would enter into judgment with all the nations of the world. And of course, that coming day, as we know, is Armageddon and the second coming, blah, 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 etc., etc. Right, now uh, in chapter 35, so we like had the second coming and Armageddon there. I do assure you that if you read Isaiah, if you were to go to each chapter and, and, and read it in the light of what I'm saying, you will find it easier. I'm not saying you will find it easy, but you will find it a lot easier because at least you'll have an idea of what it's, it's going on about. Um, and in chapter 35, you get a prophecy about the coming of uh, Messiah and, um, you know, that eventually Israel is going to be restored to the land and, you know, the millennial kingdom, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, um, I mean, sort of like, you know, this is where you get, you know, we saw earlier that the eyes of the blind being opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, you know, these verses were applied to Jesus. And um, also, you get in this verse the... It, in the chapter here, the famous verse is about the, high, the highway of holiness, and that, that occurs here. And uh, so then, having come to the end of chapter 35, we're at the end of the first section, all right? And it's like a sandwich, Isaiah. Now, now we're coming to the jam. That, that, that was the first bit of bread, all right? Now, the thing that's sandwiched in the middle is uh, chapters 36 to 39, all right? And what I called earlier the historical interlude. And basically, this um, historical interlude is basically um, two kings, chapter 18, verse 13, to um, two kings, chapter 20, verse 19, mixed in with uh, 2 Chronicles 32. And the reason I'm saying that, it's the straight historical account of Assyria besieging Jerusalem. And um, so the writers of Kings and Chronicles, when they got to that bit of the history, they quite simply copied Isaiah. 
because Isaiah had already written that history. This was before Kings um, and Chronicles were written. It was after the events that Kings and Chronicles report, but it was long before Kings and Chronicles was actually written. And so the writer of Kings and Chronicles, when they got to this bit of, you know, of history, uh, they just copied what Isaiah wrote. And basically what you've, you've got here is that um, you know, the Assyrians have taken care of up north, you know, so Israel, the northern kingdom, is gone, Assyrian captivity, very, very bad news indeed. Um, and what happens now is that Assyrian has a go at the south as well, so they try and take the southern kingdom into captivity as well. And you'll remember the story that uh, Sennacherib, you know, who was uh, leading the army at the time, um, you know, Sennacherib besieged all around Jerusalem, and this was when Hezekiah was a king. And uh, think things got really bad, and uh, even to the point where there was cannibalism, you know, because the supplies were cut off completely, and it, it was really bad. But the Lord told Isaiah that we're going to be safe. And, um, and you'll remember that what happened was that uh, eventually the um, Assyrian army had to to um, clear off somewhere and um, you know they were going to come back but they cleared off to deal with um, another nation that invaded their territory somewhere else and the Lord you know sort of struck them and, and thousands and thousands and thousands of their soldiers died overnight and the siege was, was just over and just like that you know the Lord moved and uh, suddenly Jerusalem was absolutely free again and so God took care of the Assyrian army you know just like that not like that more like that it's an important difference um, then you get the, the the story of um Hezekiah got got ill and um, you know and he prayed for healing and Isaiah uh, told him that his life would be extended by 15 years and that uh, you'll remember that through that time uh, you know that extra 15 years he got was he he, he took the Babylonian em, uh, envoys um, all round the kingdom and of course this was when Babylon was just beginning to get a bit big just beginning and uh, Hezekiah this act of showing the envoys round was absolutely stupidity and um, you know and of course it was part you know all tied up with the fact that eventually the Babylonians were to, to carry off Judah as well and, uh, and then you get, you know, sort of like, and this is extra to what you get in Kings and Chronicles, but, you know, sort of like when he was actually healed and Isaiah prayed for him and Hezekiah was actually healed. And uh, so that's the historical section, you know, like the, you know, the Assyrian army coming to destroy Jerusalem and the Lord setting them free. And as I say, that, that's, that section is repeat of the history that we've already seen when we did two Kings and two Chronicles. So, so now we come on to the third section. So this is the second bit of bread in the sandwich, all right? We've just done the jam or the cheese or whatever you like in your sandwiches. Um, and uh, so, so now we come on to the second bit of bread, as it were, the third section. And, um, and these are prophecies that, that by and large uh, concern the captivity of Judah a hundred years later under the Babylonians. So again, we've got the fact that the northern kingdom has been carted off 
by Assyria. Uh, the southern kingdom has been set free from Assyria. You know, Assyria tried to get them, but the Lord defended them. But now you get all the prophecies. We've seen some already, but now it really homes in on the fact that in the future, and in fact it happened a hundred years later, that uh, Judah was going to be carted off into captivity by the Babylonians in exactly the same way that Israel had been carted off by the Assyrians. And uh, But having said that, we're going to see that there's a bit about the, um, you know, the end times as well, mixed in there. So, cha chapter 40. <coughs> Um, and you get here prophecies of, of comfort, you know, sort of to Jerusalem. You know, the famous chapter that begins, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Um, and it's prophecies assuring Jerusalem that ultimately she'll be saved and delivered and blessed. Which, of course, eventually during the thousand year reign of Christ, she will be, because Jesus will rule the earth from Jerusalem. And uh, so it's promise of ultimate, you know, that they'll be okay. And of course, they needed this, because when Judah was carted off by the Babylonians, they knew, if only through Isaiah, they knew that uh, eventually they were going to go back into the land. So they knew that whereas Israel was destroyed, never heard of again, the ten lost tribes as it were, the south knew that eventually, <coughs> once they ended up in captivity, they could read Isaiah and know that eventually they were going to get back into the land and that they'd be okay. And uh, also in this chapter you get the, the, the verses of um, a, a, a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And of course those were the verses applied to John the Baptist. And uh, so, obviously, you've got very much a, a messianic theme there, you know, a prediction of the coming of Messiah. Then in chapter 41, you get um, a prophecy concerning this bloke. I'll say he's a bloke at the moment, because he doesn't get named yet. He does in chapter 44, but he doesn't here in chapter 41. And that what's going to happen is that a bloke was going to arise, who, once he defeated the Babylonian Empire, he would enable the Jews to go back into the land. Um, so what you've got here, this is a hundred years before the Babylonians took Judah into captivity. Here, Isaiah, he's already told them that that's going to happen. He's now telling them that at the end of the captivity, someone is going to arise who's going to defeat that empire, and the Babylonian empire will be dead. And that this bloke, having done that, will then send the Jews back to their land. Now that's Ezra and Nehemiah territory, 200 years later on in Israel's history. The bloke, is not named here, but he's named in chapter 44, is Cyrus. And in chapter 44 we're going to see that Cyrus of Persia is named. So at this point the Babylonians are not even a world power. Isaiah names the, <coughs> the leader of the world power after the Babylonian world power, 
200 years in the future. But naming people. This is why, if you read a lot of you know, books, there are so many people, they say that Isaiah wasn't written by Isaiah, that it was written much later than Isaiah, because how could it have got all this stuff right? Well, the answer to that is, he was a prophet. And even though he was giving details of what was going to happen 200 years in the future, that's what prophets do, or part of what they do. You know, so there in chapter 41, a prophecy about the stuff that happened during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Amazing. Um, and that, that, that this is given as proof that, that God is sovereign over idols and stuff like that. Because, you know, you've got idols that can't speak. I mean, the Jews worshipping these stupid idols who couldn't even speak. And yet here you've got Isaiah, a prophet of the Lord, telling them things that weren't going to happen for 200 years. And this is given as proof in chapter 41 that God is superior to the useless idols that, that the Jews every now and then ended up worshipping. Um, then in chapter 42, what happens is this character, this deliverer, who's going to deliver Israel from the Babylonians and send them back into the land, this figure who in chapter 44 gets, you know, named Osiris, what happens now is that it switches to Messiah so that Cyrus becomes a figure, a type of Messiah to come, who was eventually to set his people free um, in a way that, you know, sort of like way above anything that Cyrus did. And so Cyrus becomes a messianic figure because he, he, let, he sent Israel back into the land from captivity. And of course at the second coming, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's going to make sure that Israel gets their land back. And, and, and that for the first time, Israel will have all the land and will dwell there in complete peace. Um, then you, you, you get this, this song of praise which celebrates the ultimate victory that Messiah is going to have over his, his foes. And um, then, then the nation, this is sort of Judah, um, you know, because now Israel's gone, all right? So, so then the Jews, their, their sin, their rebuke for being deaf and blind, you know, about, you know, you know sort of like they, they shall look and look but not see, they shall hear and hear but not hear that. that. And, um, you know, sort of like, the, 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 you know, in spite of all that God was doing, they were so hard-hearted and, 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 you know, just wouldn't get right with the Lord. Um, and of course all this now is after the northern kingdom has been destroyed, so now it's all just Judah left. So we're right at the end of Isaiah's, you know, kind of life and ministry now. And uh, in chapter 43, uh, you get a, a prophecy about how much the Lord loved Israel, you know, loved, you know, his people. And that he would always be there to deliver them. So that no matter how bad things got, and things were going to get very, very bad, in the Babylonian captivity. No matter how bad things got, he would always eventually save them. And of course, even how bad things got in AD 70, when Rome came in and destroyed, you know, the city and that, and Israel lost the land, you know, for 1900 years. But no matter how bad it is for Israel, in chapter 43, the prophecy that God would always eventually save them that they would always end up back in the land. And, uh, and here the Lord says that he's going to punish the empire, you know, the Babylonian empire, for what they were going to do. 
hundred years before Babylon has done it. But the Lord says, when they do it, I will punish them. You know, so be be assured of that. And uh, and and this, even though Israel continue to be unfaithful to him, and uh, it's in chapter forty-three that um, sorry, it's in in chapter forty-three. And if you find verse twenty-five, um that you get the famous verse, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. And the Lord's saying that he's going to bring Israel to the point where their sins will be blotted out completely. The coming of Jesus to die on the cross and then uh, when he comes again to establish the kingdom. Um, right, so um, that's, that's chapter 43. Uh, 44 and 45 are a package and um, now Cyrus is named in chapter 44. So this figure that Isaiah's been talking about, who's saying the Babylonians are going to take you into captivity, but this, this character, this bloke, will arise and he will defeat the Babylonian Empire and he will send you back into the land. And Isaiah makes him a kind of a type of the coming Messiah. Here, he's named quite specifically as being Cyrus, who was the leader of the Persian Empire when it defeated the Babylonian Empire. And, um, and again, in chapters 44 and 45, the, the symbolism, it uses him as a type of the Messiah and it refers to him as being the Lord Shepherd and anointed one so and the anointed one is the Hebrew word Messiah so what you've got here is that Cyrus alright he foreshadowed the coming of Jesus because he was the Lord Shepherd he gathered Israel back together in the pen where they should have been in Israel alright but he was the anointed one he was God's chosen to do that job. And of course, that is exactly what Jesus came to do. So Melchizedek in the Old Testament, we've seen before that he was a picture of Jesus. And here, Cyrus, the leader of the Persian Empire, uh, is, is used as a, a type of Jesus as well. And in chapters 44 and 45, this is all, all what God is doing is set alongside the evil and stupidity of the idolatry that all the time the Jews were doing. Because all the time it was idolatry. And at rock bottom, the Assyrians <coughs> carted off the north, Israel, because Israel was in idolatry. And at the end of the day, the Babylonians carted the south off Judah because of idolatry. And all the way through the prophets, You've got various areas that they deal with, social justice, as we're going to see um, in future talks, but the real core was idolatry. Idolatry was always the danger that, that, that meant that the Jews would end up being carted off into captivity. And in chapter 46, you get a, a description of the Babylonian gods, um, Bel and Nebo. And, and Bel and Nebo, you know, these two idols, they were, they were actually, you know, sort of like transported on the back of ox carts. And, um, and you, know, it's, you know, it's a lovely chapter and, it, it, you know, it, it, it kind of, you know, sort of pictures this idea that the Babylonians, here are their idols and they've got to carry their idols. 
and there's a picture of sort of like bell bows down and nebo stoops it's like the idea that the cart you know sort of like you know goes on the wonk and these idols fall off and the babylonians have got to you know to put their idols to hold them up in case they fall off the cart and then the Lord goes on to say but but I carry you Israel I carry you and there's this lovely picture of God you know giving them a piggyback you know because they're his children and you know so the the contrast there you know that the Babylonians have to carry their gods but the Lord is saying but I carry you you don't carry me I carry you there's a marvelous uh, there's a marvelous Bible study in there you know sort of like you know who's carrying who are we carrying God or are we being carried by him I mean often don't we our Christian lives we lead them as if we're carrying him oh the pressure when underneath are the everlasting arms he's actually carrying us and uh, you know I'll save that for another day I haven't got time to go into it here but that that that's what chapter 46 is all about you know and it just sums up saying look what chance have these idols got before a god like that absolutely none and again the stupidity that the Jews were worshipping these gods these idols absolutely crazy um, then in chapters 47 to 48 you actually get a description of how the Babylonian Empire fell now I mean we're, we're 200 or we're 100 years before there was a Babylonian Empire chapter 47 and 48 describes in detail how the Babylonian Empire fell and it fell overnight without a shot being fired and uh, you know sort of like you know read Daniel and read secular history I mean all this you know the second historians well aware of all this it's well documented the Babylonian Empire fell overnight to the Medo-Persian Empire and it was the night and we'll see when we get to Daniel that you've got you know the writing on the wall many many Tekel and passing and and the Babylonian Empire faded away overnight and the Medo-Persian Empire took over Cyrus was the governor of the Medo-Persian Empire and uh, so there you get a detailed you know, prophecy of how the Babylonian Empire was going to fall overnight. And, um, you know, and then the Lord sort of says to them, look, you know, and yet nevertheless you carry on in your stubbornness, you carry on in your rebellion against me. And he sort of pleads with the nation to get right to him. Uh, then chapters 49 and 50, you have prophecies of the um, eventual coming of the Messiah. And uh, that when when he came, um, that this would lead to Israel's dwelling in the land in, in, in safety. So there again, you've got the time that the coming of Messiah would mean that Israel will be dwelling in the land safety. And of course, there you've got um, the millennial reign. And what's happening is that Cyrus is being referred to here as the Lord's <laughs> servant because he enabled Israel, having been taken into captivity, he enabled the Jews to go back into the land. And yet all the time it's switching, Cyrus is the Lord's servant, and yet he's foreshadowing something that was going to happen later and be even greater, which was the coming of Messiah and Jesus. And how, of course, when Jesus comes again, not only is Israel going to be back in the land completely, but it's going to be Israel back in the land with God, Jesus, ruling the earth from there. So you, you've got the ultimate, so it's switching all the time. Cyrus is God's servant, 
in these prophecies, but so is Messiah. And the idea is that the typology, the symbolism, is going from the lesser to the greater. Cyrus getting the Jews back into land from captivity, and then one day, Jesus is going to get Israel back in the land so that they're going to be top dog over the whole world. And, and, and sort of like, you know, this idea of the servant. This is what God's servant is going to do. And, um, you know, so eventually he, God will live amongst his people and rule over the earth. And all the promises in the Old Testament that yet have yet to be fulfilled will be then, and that Israel will properly have the land. And, uh, and then it, it goes on to contrast the obedience of this servant Messiah, this, the Lord's anointed. Contrast the obedience that he has to the disobedience and rebellion of Israel as a corporate mass. Because all the time, through Isaiah, God is calling them to faithfulness and to repent and turn from their sins. Then in chapter 51, you get more on uh, the fact that Israel is going to be delivered from the Babylonian captivity and restored to the land. And it goes over this again and again and again from every angle. You know, it really sort of like labours it. And that it gives that as a picture of the eventual coming of the kingdom when Messiah rules in person. So again, continuing the idea, the lesser becomes a picture of the greater. Israel eventually going back into the land after the Babylonian, you know, sort of like, you know, being, you know, carted off there. That's, that's great, that's fantastic, but it's nothing compared to what's going to happen when Messiah establishes Israel in the land and the whole world will pour into it. So again, that's the, and all this, a hundred years before the Babylonians actually cart Judah off into captivity. This is a hundred years before the Babylonians really became a world power. So it's all quite, you know, if you read this, you'd think that you were reading a book that was written around the time of Kings and Chronicles. It wasn't. It was written a couple, you know, sort of like two, three hundred years before that. Absolutely incredible. Um, and then, in chapter 51, you get again that, 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 that God homes in. And he's saying to them, the reason that the Babylonians are going to take you into captivity is because you will not repent of your sins. And so through Isaiah, God says, don't forget, that's the reason for the captivity to come. It's because of your sin. You won't get right with me. Then in chapters 52 and 53, we come to what must surely be one of the most famous, well-known sections of the Old Testament. And um, in chapter 52, you, you, you get kind of, um, you know, it starts off, you know, talking about the future blessing that is going to come upon Jerusalem. And, you know, you get the ver how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. You know, picture there of the coming of Messiah. And you get then, for the rest of chapter 52 and 53, this picture of the suffering servant. That this Messiah, this anointed one, this, this, this ultimate person whom King Cyrus has been a picture of so far, 
we get that this anointed one, this Messiah that Cyrus was simply pointing to, is going to accomplish everything that he's going to do by suffering. It's going to be by him suffering. And it's going to be through him dying a substitutionary death so that sin can be dealt with. Um, you know, sort of like, let, you know, let's, let's read verse 53 and let's, let, let's read, well, you know, from, from verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Then it says, surely he took our infirmities, carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but pierced for our iniquities, our transgressions. And they, the substitutionary death of Messiah, dealing with the real problem, the problem of sin. And of course it was that, ultimately, that paved the way for all the promises to Israel. And not only to Israel, but to the Gentiles, because the Gospel is all-inclusive. It paved the way, freedom from sin, and the ultimate establishment of God's Kingdom on earth. And then in verse 54 and 55, it goes on to outline the fact that as a result of the suffering that this servant, this Messiah has done, as a result of that, the kingdom would be established. That this would lead to that eventual day when Israel will own the land and the nations of the world will pour in. And of course, it goes on to say that the, the invitation is universal, it's to all. It's not just to Israel. Israel is the means of this salvation, but the availability of this salvation is for the Gentiles as well. <coughs> All can enter into that kingdom. Although the kingdom is Jewish, nevertheless all can enter into it because Jesus died for all men. And, uh, you know, as you read through it, you, you, you know, you, you, you see this description uh, again of the, the thousand year reign of Jesus. Then in chapters 56 to 57, you get blatant, you know, a blatant statement that the offer of this salvation is open wide to the Gentiles as well. Remember, Israel kept falling into the idea that salvation was just for them. It wasn't. They were the means of salvation to the whole world. And, and here you get that salvation is open wide to the Gentiles. And, um, and then you get a long list of sins that God condemns them for saying that this is what you've got to repent of. And he, he, he homes in on profaning the Sabbath and idolatry. And the Lord says, look, you've got to, you know, you've got to put these sins right or I'm going to judge you. But then he, he tells them that grace and forgiveness is available if you do repent. Then if you are contrite, then forgiveness is going to be available for you. And then in verse 58, the Lord says to them that, uh, what the true fast is that he's wanting. At the time of Isaiah, Israel was, was, was all, you know, kind of a bit of genuine following the Lord and a bit of idolatry and stuff like that. You had outward conformity, but inside it was hypocrisy and 
bit of idolatry on the side and stuff like that, and the people were fasting. And the Lord speaks to them, he says, I'm not interested in that kind of fasting. And he says, look, the fast that I want is a fast of humble repentance towards me. And God says, look, you want a fast? He says, right, here's the fast that I want from you. I want social justice. I want you to care for the poor. I want you to stand up for the oppressed. I want you to honour the Sabbath. And what God is saying there is that I don't just want the externals. The externals are no good unless the inward reality is there as well. And God is saying, look, you can fast all you like. It doesn't do a thing for me. You're still all rotten on the inside. And that's a theme that we'll come back to again and again in the prophets. The Lord's saying, right, okay, out is saying your prayers, you're doing your worship, you're doing your fasting, having your feast days. He says, but you're not caring for the poor. He says, you're oppressing people, you love money. There's no sharing amongst you. Let righteousness and justice flow down. That's the theme, you know. So God's saying, I don't want outward signs of religion, I want the inward reality. And really, in a sense, you know, that's kind of, that's James, faith without works. God says, I don't want faith, not without works. You know, do your singing, your praying, your festivals, you name it. But unless the reality of the works are there, I'm not interested. And then in chapter 59, um, God calls to the people to turn from their sins and repent and promises them that if they did that they would be set free. Now if, if, if you just find verse 16 and because uh, this, this is uh, chapter 59 and um, <coughs> no I got that wrong there sorry forget that forget that that was a uh, getting confused there. Um, so that's chapter 59. Then in chapter 60 through to 62 um, you, you, you have another description of, of, of the glory of, 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 of the Lord throughout Zion. So you get a description of what Jerusalem, what Israel is going to be like when you know you know in the millennial reign when, when God is amongst them and, and, and when all the nations of the earth are honouring Israel. And if you read through that, it's a you know a sort of clear description of the thousand-year reign of Jesus, and um, and then in chapters sixty-three and sixty-four, you you have um, various stages of the second coming, um, including Israel's prayer for it, because uh, you remember you know that Jesus said you know to you know, the Jews, he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course, the second coming will happen when Israel, um, you know, prays for it. And, um, you know, and you get this, this kind of, you know, sort of like various stages of the second coming and the great tribulation described. And uh, I mean, sort of 64, chapter 64, verse 1. And this is a prayer, oh that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. What's that about? That is the prayer that Israel as a nation prays at the end of the Great Tribulation. They pray that the Lord will rend the heavens and come down. Because when he does come down, what happens? The mountains split. See? Quite literally. And that's the prayer that Israel as a nation will pray that will lead to the second coming. Um, 
also you get um you know sort of the facts you know in these verses that jesus will go to bosra and you know and that, that he'll come again there'll be armageddon he'll go to bosra then he'll land on the mount of olives and uh, i think the bosra thing you know i think robert's theory is quite good that you know that that's where the jews who flee from Jerusalem when the Antichrist goes in, that that will be one of the places that they go to, Edom and Moab. There's safe havens in the Great Tribulation. The Antichrist has no, no power there. And so you get, you know, this, this kind of, you know, sort of like, you know, the, the, the unfolding stages of the Second Coming in the lead up to Armageddon. Um, then in, in, in chapter 65, you, you have the that the final assurance that Israel will be restored, that no matter what happens, her future is absolutely secure in the Lord, uh, and prophecies of judgment against, you know, those who, you know, who don't follow the Lord and who are against Him. And then uh, at the end of chapter 65, you get the promise of uh, a new heavens and a new earth. So that goes beyond the thousand year reign of Christ now, and that goes into the eternal state. And, um, you know, and, and all foreshadowed by the blessings of the millennial, you know, reign of Jesus in Jerusalem. And uh, then in chapter 66, um, have a kind of a, a peep into the eternal state. Um, there'll be no temple there. Uh, there'll be no sacrificial system there, obviously. Um, and it talks about, you know, the glory of Israel as a nation the eternal state, blah, blah, blah. The universality of salvation, again, it talks about how the Gentiles are included. You know, it's not just for Jews, it's for, it's for um, Gentiles as well. And then it, it, it kind of ends with, um, actually, well, if we read verse 22, Isaiah 66, so we'll read the last couple of verses of the book, and it'll give you the idea. <coughs> As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Now then, listen to this. These are the final verses. And they will go out and look upon the bodies of those who are dead and who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched and they will be loathsome to all mankind. And they're the verses that Jesus spoke about the lake of fire. And so it ends with the destination of the believers in the eternal state and unbelievers in the lake of fire. So it's massive in its scope, is Isaiah. And <clears throat> obviously all we've done is, is had a quick dippy, dippy, dippy. But, um, you know, sort of like, it's massive. I mean, all the prophecies about all the nations at Isaiah's own time, all those came true. Then he prophesied Judah's future for the next 200 years, the Babylonian captivity, Cyrus going back into the land, all that came true. Then all the prophecies about the Messiah's first coming, virgin birth, where he was born, blah, 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 all that came true. And of course, what's yet to come true of the prophecies are all the prophecies of the end times, the great tribulation, the thousand year reign of Christ and the eternal state. So you can see a busy man, a busy ministry, he sure knew how to prophesy. <laughs>
So um, I'll leave you there. And uh, But I think that in the light of that, if you were to read each chapter in the light of just this very quick outline I've given you of each chapter, I think you'll find it will make a little bit more sense than it has thus far.